If you've been, of course, with, with us, you're understanding that we're reading through Acts and just kind of seeing this journey of the church being born in, in the New Testament. It's quite a fascinating community that's beginning to materialize and just the things that were happening in that community. I mean, we're talking amazing stuff, right? And so we're in chapter 6, the first seven verses, practically spiritual is the message. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurator, and uh, Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas and a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles and after praying they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Amen. We'll stop there. This passage of Scripture, if you have read through the book of Acts, should be familiar to you. And in, in, in reading this, it kind of highlights what I think uh, an error that we can fall into. Uh, I think a lot of the times we can look at ministry to God and service in the church in two spheres. We can kind of draw a line down the middle and say one side is a spiritual type of work. And the other is an unspiritual, not unnecessary. I mean, both are necessary. But one is spiritual in nature and the other is unspiritual in nature. And by saying unspiritual, I'm not meaning evil or ungodly. I'm just talking about things like, let's say, the spreading of the gospel, the evangelism in the community, the different things that we can wholly and probably almost regularly think of, of spiritual acts leading in worship, right? And on the other side, maybe from our passage, serving tables, cleaning up the facility, let's say. And there are these tasks that are necessary to keep a, a group or a community of people functioning and, and kind of in community like that. And as you look at all of the small individual things necessary to keep it afloat, we might divide it as spiritual and unspiritual. Now, I have a, a history in, in serving the church. My dad was a pastor. My grandfather on my mother's side was a pastor as well. But with my dad being a pastor, him going into ministry in his midlife, when he was at the age of 40, he decided to go into seminary. And at the age of 44, he planted his first church. And me then being a young teenager and kind of thrust into this now pastoral ministry family that was very personal because it's not a grandparent. It's just one generation and we live in the same household. And so my father being a pastor automatically brought our entire family into the ministry. And 
through my teenage years, I eventually uh, heeded a call to God and I myself went into the ministry. And in doing so, at the age of 18, fresh into Bible school and at 19, going into ministry as a part-time youth pastor, I was serving my dad's church and it was a church plant. And so being a small church and now being the son of the pastor who is now going into a path of ministry, you can assume that I did a lot of things in the church, right? From printing to folding bulletins to helping with the offering to leading prayer meetings and praying over the mic on Friday nights to leading the youth ministry on Sundays. There were a lot of things in a lot of places where I had my hands in. And with now just this freshly cut experience in ministry, in my mind, I automatically saw certain things that had appeal and certain things that didn't. Certain things that were deemed very, very important and other things that were easily overlooked by a lot of people. Grabbing a mic and leading a congregation in prayer on a Friday was visible to everybody and it seemed to have a very vocal effect, a powerful influence. Giving a kid a ride home Friday night didn't. Folding a bulletin and counting offering and doing all of the things necessary administratively had a lot of impact, of course, but it didn't have a visible thing. And so there, there are these different little pockets of visible and important, invisible and important, and seemingly invisible and unimportant. And all of these particular areas of the church were necessary, these ministry responsibilities. And having this kind of line saying that this is spiritual and this is unspiritual was a very unnecessary wrong thing for me to think of at that particular time. And as we read this particular passage, in, in a certain sense, I think that can come to light. That this church is forming in, in the book of Acts, and thousands of people are being added to the community of believers. And as this was happening, you can imagine this bubbling, exploding congregation. And can you imagine the supervision necessary just to govern this group? I mean, we're not talking about a small task, right? And as these throngs of people were now gathering on a regular basis and the church took it upon itself to to provide the the needs of the community and to share their belongings and, and also not only to teach the word but to feed stomachs and as all of these responsibilities were growing and and multiplying certain people were being overlooked Now, some suggest that it wasn't an intentional overlook of the Hellenistic widows. Now, if you don't know, Hellenists were kind of like Jews that were in the diaspora of the Roman Empire. And they were kind of all throughout. And the Hellenists, they kind of acclimated to Greek culture, whereas the Hebrews, they were the Jews that that really clung to the traditional Jewish culture. And so, in a sense, if you want to think about it, if you come, like I'm, uh, my parents are Korean, right? And so they uh, can be like a, I can call them a Korean-Korean, right? And I can call myself a Korean-American. And so the Hellenist would be the, the Jewish-Greek, whereas the Hebrew would be the Jewish-Jew, okay? And so as these groups were forming in the early church, there was the Hellenists and the Hebrews, and suddenly there became a rift among them. And 
I can totally see how this would happen, especially from my background of kind of being a Korean kind of American and kind of interfacing with Korean Koreans and seeing how I think differently and how different things unfold in the midst of just two generations. I can see how a rift would form. And so the Hellenists, the the Jewish Greeks, they were the ones saying, wait a minute, something is going on here. Our widows are not being treated the same as your widows. And as things were forming in such a beautiful way, there became this little spot, this discomfort, this area of separation and division. And this was forming. And as this was happening, there was this discussion about serving tables and now the apostles saying we got ministry to the word and prayer and how these were different tasks and you should uh, select and appoint men to, to do that and we'll do this. And it seems to be when you look at it that the apostles had the hefty weight living of prayer and ministry of the word and okay you know what we don't want to kind of neglect our time with this and we don't want to just you know uh, waste our time with this so why don't you just kind of figure this out and serve tables it can kind of in a certain way to some people have that ring to it and through this message I want to debunk that so here's my main idea today it's serving that serving God in any capacity is both practical and spiritual both. Okay? That when I serve the Lord and His church in any capacity, it should and must be considered practical and spiritual. And I'm not talking about whether it's visible or invisible or behind the scenes. I'm not talking about whether there is a dramatic influence on how many people come into the kingdom of heaven or whether it's just a small, minute thing. That every task in serving the Lord has a sense of being both practical and spiritual. And I must not separate the two when I think about serving Him. Why do I say that? There is a key word here in the text. And it's the word serving. Or to minister. And it's found in verse 1 and in verse 4. And it says, the serving of food and the ministry of the word. These two words in the original language of Scripture is the same word. And so when you see the serving of food in the ministry of the word, it has a very similar connotation to it, a very similar parallel meaning. That serving food and serving the word, that ministering tangible food, and ministering the Word of God. That it was considered the same thing, in a sense. That there was a a similar ring to it, an understanding that both were necessary and important, and we would view it as such. And so today, through this message, we want to talk about Satan's strategy to, to break up and weaken the church, and we also want to talk about the church's response to what Satan was trying to do in that early community. It has been evident through our reading in the book of Acts that Satan has been trying to to quench this early infant church. As Jesus was commissioning them and ascended into heaven and this group was praying, was invested with the Holy Spirit and they were preaching the word, there was the, the dominant physical intimidation of, let's say, the religious leaders. And this was an attempt to kind of squash this movement. It was getting the elite, the religious elite of the day, and intimidating these early believers to say, hey, stop this. And it's all throughout the chapters that we read. 
And so you have intimidation that Satan was trying to use. And you also saw a sense of trying to corrupt from within. And uh, we see an allusion to that when we, th- when, we, when we read Ananias and Sapphira, when there was this uh, benevolent giving and generosity in the church, and people were taking their homes and lands and selling and bringing it to the church so that it can be distributed. And from within that, there became ill motives. There became pride and greed, and Ananias and Sapphira agreeing amongst themselves to sell it, to deceive, and to say, this is what it was sold for, but to hold back money for themselves. And how that became a point where God gave Peter a word of knowledge that this wasn't all the money and that they had lied to God, not to men, and them being struck dead there, that that was this, this sign to the church. And so we see not just intimidation, we see also trying to corrupt from within, and these are all tactics that can be used to weaken a forming church. But none of those things ha- ha- seem to work. I mean, you have the, the chief priests kind of intimidating, saying, stop speaking in this name, and yet they continue to do that. You see Ananias and Sapphira with ill motives trying to do that, but that didn't catch on. And there was this holy sense of fear that spread in the church as a result of this deception, and that didn't work either. And from our passage, I, I, I see two other things that can come to light in Satan's strategy to weaken and, and break up the church. And if intimidation and, dis, and corruption from within, if those didn't work so far, he goes back to two other, in what I think are tried and tested ways to break up a group. And the first is this, to divide the church, division. If you can take a group of people and somehow divide them and get them bickering amongst themselves against each other, you can weaken that body of believers. It can happen in a family, it can happen in a workplace, it can happen amongst friends. That when you can successfully divide them and have them fight against each other and their energies and resources are no longer used for a common purpose but merely to survive and to just kind of point fingers at one another, that group will not accomplish much. And so we see that beginning to happen, and it's happening with the Hebrews and the Hellenists. And Hebrews saw Hellenists as these uh, people that were unspiritual compromisers with Greek culture. And Hellenists saw Hebrews that were like holier-than-thou traditionalists. And so not only was there this natural cultural rift between them, that was also just kind of exacerbated when there was a perceived distinction in how certain classes of widows were being treated. And people would say that this wasn't an intentional overlook of the Hellenistic widows. That as the church was growing, it was just a lack of supervision. I mean, I mean, administering and organizing leadership for thousands of people is not easy. And as this is now a new forming group and, you know, they're just getting different responsibilities at widows that we were called to take care of. And so they decided to, to help and to support them. And yet as they were doing that, maybe there were just too many. And they weren't that organized in the beginning. And so they're learning as they go, right? And most would say this wasn't an intentional overlook of the Hellenists. But it was just a byproduct of a a growing group that was learning how to organize itself. And an interesting thing here is, I think it brings to light how Satan can use unintentional wrongs to cause division amongst people. I mean, as a group just gathers, as people congregate together, 
there might be great intentions. And just in the midst of just living life together, just being in community, there are unintentional wrongs that take place. And too often we can kind of grab the tail of that wrong and allow it to cause a chasm between groups within that community. And in a sense, this is kind of Satan's covert specialty, right? Kind of taking that little tiny thing and making it something really, really big. Something that wasn't intended to be that way, but saying, hey, I'm going to twist you to think about it that way. And all of a sudden, that's the only way we can think of it now, right? And I see that happening here. It's the perfect condition for a church split, in my opinion, right? I mean, if you study church history, uh, churches have been split over the colors of carpets, right? <laughs> and, uh, let alone other, other matters in the church. And what we find here is just a perfect condition for there to be a split within the church. It's just applying pressure to existing cracks. Have you ever had a, a crack in your windshield? You all had that, right? We've all had that experience, right? And if you leave it there, it's just at first this little tiny ding, and it just. But if you leave that there, when there's constant wind pressure, and when you're driving, and just the 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 bending of the car frame and the the shifting, even in the minute way of that windshield, it <laughs> it just grows and it grows, right? And that's how you apply pressure to an existing crack, and it gets bigger. Relationally, it's the same way. If you want to rip a piece of clothing, you find the seam or a small tear to begin with, and you apply pressure in the opposite direction at that place. You don't find the middle of the piece of fabric and say, I'm going to rip it here. The easier way to do it is, again, to find the seam or the small rip where it's presently at. And that's what we're finding here, that Satan was using a cultural crack. Hellenists and Hebrews, those that were Hebrew... Greeks and Hebrew Hebrews. And finding that and saying, I will find a way to make a division and weaken this body right there, right there. And it was a point of serving food. Something that was supposed to be intended as a good thing, to serve the needs of the widows. And somehow Satan allowed that to be a point to twist and to apply pressure and, 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 and just to create a, a bigger rift. And if let alone, it would have really created a community disaster. And so to divide the church, and he's trying to do it amongst that existing crack. The second strategy that he uses is to attempt to distract the leaders. And this comes out here, right? Because as this was happening, and you have a whole swell of people now coming to the leadership saying, Hey, <laughs> Solve this problem. And they're like, wait a minute, what's going on first? Tell me what's going on. And so they explain the situation. This is happening. And they do the right thing. They say, okay, this is happening and it shouldn't be happening. And so let's fix the problem. And they'd go about it in the right way, trying to delegate and trying to wisely choose people who can supervise and organize this ministry responsibility so that they would not be deterred from also doing what they were called to do. And so here it's not about important or unimportant, spiritual or unspiritual. This is about calling. It's about the nature of the calling that God has given to us and being faithful to that. Now, 
uh, I'm not a singer. Right? If I tried to sing, I would scatter you, I guarantee you, right? And that's not what I'm called to. God has called me to try to survey and investigate Scripture, to be faithful in shepherding and teaching through the Word and guiding a congregation. Now, that has a certain responsibility and different things to it, and there are other responsibilities in how uh, a church is to be grown and, and, and really become stronger. And so there is the assembly of people with different callings and different functions within the church to build one body together. And there are countless passages in Scripture that would talk about that, and especially when Paul talked about the body. And how there's an an eye or a hand or a foot and not one part can say to the other that I'm more important or you're less important. And how all are necessary because we are one body and Christ is the head. And this is talking about the importance of every part of our body, big or small, visible or underneath. And this is so applicable to the church. And so Satan was trying to distract leadership. Now Satan knows that one of the greatest drivers to church stability and growth is really strong Bible teaching. It is a ministry of prayer. And if you can deter people from praying and reading and teaching Scripture, you can handicap a ministry. And so get them involved in politics. Get them involved with a swarm of other things so that they would be distracted from that responsibility to do other things. And you will successfully handicap a church. And so these leaders, these apostles, they say, no, it shouldn't be that we neglect this. And again, not because it's, these are more important responsibilities, but because they were their responsibilities. And so these men are appointed, people who are full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. And this we go into our second part. And so the strategy of Satan was, to try to divide and then also to distract. And I see the church's response to that was firstly to select and establish, to appoint and set up capable leaders. And it says in Scripture that these were, were spiritual and practical because they were both full of the Spirit and of wisdom. If you look, if, can you flip with me to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul teaches about ministry in the church. And this passage is talking about the the offices or the spiritual gifts within the church. And it says, And he, speaking of God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And these we call the fivefold offices of the church, right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now these five offices of leadership within the church were established for a purpose. Okay? They were established for, verse 12, the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You can't miss what's important here. A lot of the times we can think that the early church, it was the apostles that were leading the way and everyone else was along for the ride. You look at a church ministry that it's the pastors and the people that are on staff that should do all of the things and they're leading the way and we're just along for the ride. But what comes out here is that the establishment of these five offices of ministry, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, they were for the purpose of the equipping of the church body, that's the saints, to do what? For the work of of service to the building up of the body of Christ. 
And so in the end, how God saw it was that these offices in the church, they were established in order to to appoint, to equip, and to lift up and to establish people that were the saints so that they could build up the body of Christ. And if you look in our church context, God has established me here to provide leadership and a place so that you can be equipped for the work and service of the ministry, to build up the body together. And so in the end, it's we are doing this together. But what we see here, it's not just that some are leading and we're just along for the ride. That the body of Christ was meant to function and operate like this. And we see this right from the beginning. And so the church, they establish capable leaders. And I think the next part is important as well, is that they gave them authority. <laughs> Have you ever worked under a micromanager? You all know what a micromanager is, right? Someone who gives you a title, but <laughs> kind of t- <laughs> they're always kind of looking over the shoulder. And they're the bottleneck of decision-making in, in that organization, right? That's what a micromanager is. A micromanager says, okay, we'll have other people there, maybe for namesake only. But in the end, I want every decision to funnel through me. And I want to know everything that's happening in this organization, when it's happening. Please report to me. Why aren't you telling me this? And they're always looking over your shoulder while you're doing the work. Right? And so the giving of authority is a very important next step to the selection and establishment of these positions. And so these men were selected and appointed and they were put in positions and given a title of ministry in this early church. But what's also important is that they were given the actual authority to go about their ministry responsibilities. Verse 3, it says, they were put in charge. Put in charge. that they were actually given authority and that these apostles actually went and did other things. They were ministering in the Word and involved in prayer. And in verse 6 it says they laid their hands on them. I love this part of this because in this context of the early church this had tremendous significance. Paul and Barnabas, before they were commissioned on their missionary journey, the leadership of the church laid their hands on them as missionaries of the early church and sent them off. We're talking about a visible, powerful investment of ministry authority. The laying on of hands. right? An anointing of leadership. And so not only were the early missionaries where they laid on with hands and sent off with prayer, these people that were serving tables, they were laying their hands on them and establishing them as leaders. I mean, maybe naturally you think, wait, is that a bit much? Aren't they just serving tables? I mean, why would you need to lay your hands on them and pray over them as such for this ministry responsibility? That's why I love verse 6 here. When they selected these people to to serve these tables they gathered them in the middle and then they gathered around them and they laid their hands on them and said lord would you hold these men faithful in the ministry responsibility that is before them would you fill them with your spirit so they can be faithful in this duty and in the end for maybe the average onlooker it was like wait aren't they just serving food and this is how the church was responding to this issue that was arising They were establishing these capable leaders full of the spirit and of wisdom and then they just laid their hands on them and they put them in charge. 
And what's the result of this? If you go back to in, in Acts 4, right? Sorry, Acts 6 in verse 7. It says this. This is the result of what, what's happening here. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And this is the result of what is happening when this body is just learning how to function in a healthy, holistic way. And as they're kind of riding through the different obstacles and speed bumps along the way that it is just natural to any growing group and organization. You're learning as you go a lot of the times. And there are these hiccups and you take a, a step back and you, and you learn from that and you go forward in a different way. And, or you're just kind of seeking wisdom and, and clarity in different ways. And, and you're just forming this organization organically. And that's what's happening in the book of Acts. With thousands of people being preached to, added to the church, sharing amongst them, praying in ministry, serving of food, and as they were just gathering in sincerity and gladness, and as these wonderful things were happening, there was the Ananias and Sapphira deception, there was the division of the Hellenists, and this grumbling that was occurring, and in the midst of all of these things, the church is learning how to function together, and how to establish ministry responsibilities that are, that are right for the individual. And they're growing and they're growing and they're learning. And this is what's happening in the early church. What a beautiful picture this is. And the result, that it just kept on growing. And even the people that were unlikely new believers were becoming believers. They were the, the priests of the day. And so I close. Praise team, you can come back. I close with a couple of things. First is this. I reinforce this fact and truth that all service to God and His church is spiritual. All service. Whether it be volunteering with babies, the cooking of food, the serving of food, cleaning up of a facility, giving a ride, encouraging a person throughout the week, teaching the Word, whatever you can think of, whether you are playing an instrument, singing over a microphone, or whether you are straightening up some chairs, that all service to God is spiritual in nature. That when we think about how we serve God, let us think that it is both practical and spiritual. That's first. Get that cleanly, securely in your heart. Second is this. When I faithfully step into a practical role of service, the church is both stronger and better equipped to fulfill its mission. Jesus gave the church a commission. Go into the world, right? Preach this gospel to the nations. Be filled with the Spirit. Be a witness to the ends, to the, to the nations. And with this commission, what it needs is a body of believers with different members, with different functions. That A body needs a hand and a foot. It needs an eye and a nose and an ear, right? And as all of these different members have different functions and they come together under the central command of the head and it brings everything in cohesion and unity and it lets it all fall in line and in step and it begins to function like that, a body, things can happen. And that's the church. That if we are to be effective and equipped for the ministry and mission that's in front of us, what it needs is people within the body, you and I, coming together with our differences and skills and callings and saying, Lord, I bring it 
the central body, and I want this to be used for the common good of your mission. That is a picture of the church. That is a picture of its strength. And may that be a picture of our body. Amen? Amen.